Nothing like waking up to a bright full moon, yeah? It's brutal, isn't it? May God rise us above our natural sleepiness this morning to hear his word. We are traveling through the season of Lent as a church and along with other churches. And we are, we are going with Jesus, who's on the road again in the Gospel of Luke. And he's journeying, he's journeying to the cross. Now before we read our scripture for today, I want to start with two exercises, thinking exercises. We will call upon the results of these as we read our text, and then again about two-thirds of the way through our message for today. So warm up your brain and let's jump into it. Into it. First exercise, think of yourself. Think through the events of your past week. Think of your daily rhythms, would you? What do you do after you wake up? What do you do during the day, for lunch, for dinner, after dinner, before you go to sleep? Think of your weekly rhythms, where you go, the nights you have at home, the nights you spend away, the time you have for solitude, to be refreshed by the Spirit of God, the time you have for meaningful relationships or the time you spend in relationships devoid of real meaning, the time you have for service. Think of yourself. What needs to change? As you think of yourself and the details of your daily and weekly rhythms, what needs to change? Change is hard, I know. We're driven to keep things the same, to maintain what psychologists call homeostasis. But sometimes things need to change. What needs to change in your life? What needs to change in your heart? One more question. How do you think God feels when you don't change what needs changed? You survived the first exercise. Congratulations. Hopefully it wasn't as brutal as waking up to that full moon. Are you guys hearing me all right? Second thought exercise. Think of someone you love that doesn't know Jesus. They may know of him, but they don't really know him. Or maybe they are resistant to everything they have come to associate with Christianity. Get this person in your mind. Remember them. Bring them before God right now and pray for God's mercy and patience and God's revelation to meet them where they are. Who is that person for you? Who do you love that doesn't know Jesus? We could go further and flip the question, who doesn't know Jesus that you should be loving? It's important that you put at the forefront of your mind a real person as we approach the word today. First thought exercise, think of yourself, what needs to change. Second thought exercise, think of another who doesn't know Jesus and bring them to our scripture for today. Before we read this scripture, let us pray. God, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus our single concern. Amen. Luke 13. We'll read our scripture for today in three blocks, starting with verses 1 through 5 from the Common English Bible. Hear the word of the Lord for you and for your loved ones. Some who were present on that occasion told Jesus about the Galileans whom Pilate had killed while they were offering sacrifices. He replied, do you think the suffering of these Galileans proves that they were more sinful 
than other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. What about those 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty of wrongdoing than everyone else who lives in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. This is the word of the Lord. Pull out your sermon notes in your bulletin, would you? Look at number two under key context. Get that in front of you. What does number two say? Bad things happen to bad people. One person knows how to read. This is wonderful. This was a common idea in Jesus' day. Disaster befalls the deserving. Turns out it's also a very common idea in our own day. And Jesus utterly rejects this way of thinking. When something bad happens to someone, we immediately start thinking about what that person did wrong, don't we? We see in the news someone died in a car accident, and if we have no relation to them, we want to believe the driver did something wrong that caused the accident. The driver must have been drunk, we think, or something along those lines. This is a defense mechanism, and it's a natural instinct in all of us. By doing this, by trying to attribute blame to the driver, we reassure ourselves that an accident like this could never happen to us because we don't drink and drive. Psychologists have observed this tendency common to us all and have given it the name Just World Hypothesis. I learned this my sophomore year of college. We all want to believe the world is just. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad bad people. And almost all of us, studies have shown, regardless of religious affiliation, almost all of us put ourselves in the category of good people. Now, the reason we think like this, psychologists tell us, and I think they're right about this, we think like this because we want to believe we have the power to protect ourselves from harm. We want to believe we have control of our destiny. So if something bad happens to someone else, We tend to attribute the cause to some moral or technical flaw on their part. And that way we deceive ourselves into thinking it could never happen to us. You do this, I do this, your neighbor does this, regardless of religion. It's a defense mechanism wired into each of us. We use it to defend ourselves from the fear of thinking it could happen to us too. The attitude is summed up in the popular saying, well, that would never happen to me. But then it does. Well, that's just terrible what happened over there, but that will never happen to me. But then it does. What a tragedy, what evil in the world. But surely, Lord, you won't let it happen to me. But then it happens. Friends, in order to guard ourselves against being afraid of everything, we have developed this defense mechanism. Let me be clear, it's not all bad. In fact, this this mechanism serves us well in some ways. God doesn't want us preoccupied with all the bad things that could happen to us on a given day. That would be a terrible way to live, right? A a life of, of constant fear. God's perfect love drives out fear. We must go on with life in the midst of tragedy after tragedy that 
endlessly cycles through the news program. This defense mechanism helps us to go on with life. In this way, I even wonder if it's a part of the common grace of God given to us after death entered the world. But there's a serious flaw with this defense mechanism, and Jesus points it out. It's based on an illusion. It's pure fantasy. Bad things do happen to good people, even to Christians who are doing God's will. Christians get cancer, and while God grants healing to some, others die. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think those who died were more sinful and less deserving than those who lived? This is precisely the line of reasoning behind those talking to Jesus about the recent local tragedy. The Roman governor Pontius Pilate had murdered Galilean Jews who were in the very act of worshiping the God of Israel, offering their sacrifices. And it's the talk of the town. So Jesus puts a question to them. Do you think the suffering of those Galileans proves they were more sinful than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. We'll deal with the second part of Jesus' response about repentance a little later. But first, let's sit with his answer to the question. Do bad things happen only to bad people? Jesus answers with a resounding, No, I tell you. What's more, and Jesus does not say this directly, but I think we can infer it. What's more is that we live under an illusion if we think it can't happen to us because we're good, because we're Christian after all. Jesus rejects that way of thinking. Bad things happen to good people, even to good Christians actively doing the will of God. Friends, the stark reality is this, and you're not going to like it. The world is unsafe, and our human bodies are fragile. From dust we have come, to dust we shall return, we remembered on Ash Wednesday, and no one is guaranteed a long life. It's human nature to trick ourselves into thinking, well, that's not true of us. It helps us cope with life in a world full of tragedy, but it's an illusion. And when you add religion to the mix, things get even messier. That can never happen to us, we think, whatever that is, because we're Christians, and God has promised to protect us, right? The only problem with this view is that eventually it must crumble. The moment tragedy comes knocking on the door, it's a sad and I think preventable fact that the faith of many have also crumbled with it. The faith of many have crumbled when tragedy comes knocking on their door because all along that faith was built on the sand of a defense mechanism. Good things happen to good people, they thought, and perhaps they were even taught this as children in their churches. And if I believe the right things and do the right things, God will see to it that I'm kept happy and sheltered from life's storms. This view of the world and this view of God will inevitably come crashing down when the hurricanes of suffering hit home. If only, if only they had built their faith on the bedrock of Jesus Christ, trusting in him and believing in his power of resurrection. It is this Jesus who deters us from building our faith on such sandy ground. Chelsea Scrotenbohr, 
She was a college friend of mine, graduated the same year. In some ways, she was a stereotypical Holland, Michigan girl, raised in the Reformed Church from a strong Christian family, tall, blonde, healthy, and Dutch. In other ways, she was far from the norm. She was fascinated with Japanese culture, collecting traditional Japanese swords and masks and shields and putting them up on her uh, walls of her room. Have anyone, any of you have a, have a Japanese sword displayed on your bedroom wall? I know that you've got some, uh, some deer and other things, but I haven't seen any uh, Japanese daggers. So this girl was kind of weird, all right? But she was my friend. She loved bugs, too. I never learned why she was into some of this stuff, but that's just who she was. But beyond all these things, and most importantly, she loved Jesus. One example of her love for Jesus was her commitment to service in an event called Dance Marathon. Hope College hosts this annual event, and actually it just so happens it took place yesterday and Friday. And the purpose of this event is to raise as much awareness and money as possible for children battling cancer. Students are invited to participate in one of two ways— You can be a dancer or a moraler. A dancer commits to staying up on their feet 24 hours, no sitting, no laying, no sleeping. That's what Chelsea committed to because she loved Jesus, and that love expressed itself in wanting to do what she could to bless these children battling cancer so bravely. And every dancer has two moralers to keep up the overall morale, and that's what I did. I was was one of Chelsea's two moralers. And we all had a good time at Hope College, and a lot of money was raised. Fast forward about 10 years. I lost touch with my old friend Chelsea, which sadly happens to so many of our friendships that were once so sweet to us, doesn't it? I kept up to date with her life, though, through her older sister, Lindsay. Lindsay worked with Stephanie as a Hope College director for many years, and so we'd we'd see her often and Over the years, I learned that that Chelsea finally got to travel to Japan, see those weird uh, martial arts in action. I learned that her fascination with bugs resulted in her becoming a biologist. I learned about her falling in love and getting married and moving out west. And then about a year ago, I heard the news. Chelsea was dead. 29 years old. Healthy, no warning signs. Chelsea died of a brain aneurysm. Sometime along her body's development, you see, a weak spot appeared on the wall of a brain artery. No way to detect it. No way to treat it. Turns out, as she was loving Jesus in college, dancing on her feet for children battling cancer, she was experiencing in her brain a a blood pounding against an artery, silently causing more wear and tear. This wear and tear would eventually cause a rupture in her brain, and when that happened, which happened just over a year ago, she instantly went into a coma. And of course, God's faithful people prayed, which we should, and she died a day later. So I ask you again, do you think Chelsea died because she was more sinful than other 29-year-olds? Do you think she died because people didn't pray enough? Do you think it couldn't happen to you? No, Jesus says to all three. Absolutely not. No, your wife did not die of cancer because she was worse than anybody else. 
God forbid it. And no, neither did your father die because we didn't do enough praying. The Lord knows we did. And the Lord knows he was a good man. And no, the two precious girls in Delphi did not die because they did anything wrong. And no, unfortunately, you and I are not immune from the brittleness of life either. Not even our righteous acts earn us this immunity. Friends, I do not like to be confronted by this sobering reality any more than you do. I want to think that because I eat well and exercise and I'm young and, be- and Lord forgive me because I'm a pastor, because of these things I want to think I'm immune from the brittleness of life. I want to live under the illusion that even though bad things happen to other people, even though bad things happen to some good people, well, God will protect me because I'm so important, right? No, Jesus says. Brandon, you are no better than those Galileans who were murdered by Pilate while worshiping the God of Israel. And unless you repent, you will die just as they did. So what are we to think? Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know. And neither does anyone else. And Jesus does not tell us. For my last research paper in college, I set out to solve the problem of evil. What youthful and naive arrogance fueled my energy I spent sleepless nights tirelessly poring over philosophy essays and theology books. There must be an answer, I thought, to the problem of evil. How can there be a good God who allows such suffering? But my work was in vain, and I didn't even get an A. The fact is, God has not given us an answer, at least one that satisfies. As our friend and theology professor Todd Billings often says, The problem of evil goes by that name because it really is a problem. There is no solving it intellectually. If there was a way, I assure you that Todd would have found it, for he's a 42-year-old brilliant theologian with two beautiful children and an Old Testament scholar for a wife, and he has been diagnosed with incurable blood cancer. I suppose if you wanted, we could talk about divine freedom. How God instills free will to humanity. Otherwise, there can't be freely reciprocated love. But the free will answer does not solve the problem of evil. It doesn't satisfy us. I suppose if you wanted, we could talk about what theologians call dual causality. How's that for a phrase? This doctrine explains that while God made the world and is the primary actor, God also allows for secondary actors. And those secondary actors have the capacity to do evil things, such that God is never, ever the author of evil. Such that God is never, ever the cause of cancer cells. But that doctrine doesn't satisfy our heart's pain either. The truth is there's really no answer to the problem of evil that would really satisfy us, is there? 
The truth is, all we really want is our friend who is no longer with us, our father, our spouse, our mother. Lord, have mercy, our child. We want them back. And no philosopher is ever going to raise them from, our, from the dead by solving the problem of evil. The biblical witness doesn't pretend to solve the problem either. Instead, what God reveals to us in the scriptures is not an answer to the problem of evil, but what God reveals to us is the remedy of evil. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Jesus is God's ultimate remedy to all human suffering and tragedy and evil. Even the evil in which we are complicit, both knowingly and unknowingly. And in the Gospel of Luke, where we sit today, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, where he will endure all suffering and evil, and where he will die a tragic death on the cross as a 33-year-old man. If God in the flesh could not escape tragedy as a 33-year-old, there are no guarantees for us either. So the Bible does not solve the problem of evil for us. Instead, here's what it does. It gives witness to a God who came down because of the mess we've gotten ourselves into. It gives witness to a God not afraid to get into the trenches. It gives witness to a God who faces evil square on and shoulders its heavy hand and exhausts death of its eternal grip gives witness to a God who dies so that we might live, to a God that raises the dead so that we might no longer fear the brittleness of life, but instead look forward and hope to the ultimate victory of God. Alas, we shall be reunited with our friends, our brother, our mother, our father. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God never promises us a pain-free life. But in Jesus Christ, God promises us everlasting life, abundant life, life in union with God. So if, rather, when the hurricane of suffering hits home for you, I want you to know deep down in your bones that no matter how hard it hits, it can never, ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you believe this? We must move on to the second part of Jesus' response in light of the local tragedy. The first part is his resounding no to the idea that bad things only happen to bad people. But the next part strikes us as quite peculiar, if not cruel. Did these things happen because they were worse sinners? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will die just as they did. In other words, the fact that bad happens to all people ups the urgency for all of us to change our hearts and lives and change them now. What is in your life that needs to change? Remember the first thought exercise? What in your heart needs to change? I urge you, Jesus 
urges you, change it now. Yes, change is incredibly hard. We're, we're inclined to keep things forever the same, but you never know how long you have. You might not get to have the conversation tomorrow. Only God knows the numbers of our days. So don't waste your life for settling for settling for less than God's dream for you. Make the most of it. Orient your life around the glorious will of God. Maybe you need to seek wise counsel for what God's purpose is for you specifically. Then do it. And when you change, leaving behind the old and pressing on toward the new, you will discover that life in Jesus is truly the most satisfying life there is. Life in Jesus is the good life. That's because it's the God-created life. It's life as your creator intended it to be. So change course and get on board with God's kingdom. And furthermore, and this is the really uncomfortable part, if you thought it couldn't get any more uncomfortable, here it is. According to Jesus, if you fail to change your heart and life, today. Tragedy might strike you down tomorrow, and you will die just like those in Jerusalem crushed by the Tower of Siloam. I don't think Jesus means that you will experience the same literal fate as them. After all, the tower has already fallen in Jerusalem. Then what does Jesus mean that you will die just like them? I think Jesus is offering an eternal warning to his first hearers, and I think Jesus is warning us just as strongly too. The threat of condemnation is like a tower ready to fall, and if you fail to change your heart and life now, and unexpectedly your heart stops and your life ends, then don't be surprised when that tower comes falling down. Perhaps this is not the portrait of Jesus we grew up with. Perhaps it's not the portrait of Jesus we generally have in mind. This Jesus in Luke 13, Scott Jose writes, he's not the one we want in the modern world. Let Jesus be all softness and light, kindness and grace, and he can nestle into the marketplace of religions and religious figures pretty easily. Let him spool out charming parables and memorable phrases and gather to himself little children, and everyone is fine with him. But that's not the Jesus we get here. The Luke 13 Jesus has some sharp edges, some seriousness of purpose, even as he exudes a pretty intense set of warnings. Friends, once we lose the illusion that we are immune from the tragedies of life, we are finally able to grasp the real significance of the now. Once we lose the illusion... Finally, we are able to grasp the real significance of the now. Today, 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 Sunday, is the day of salvation, Paul declares. The writer of Hebrews seconds this motion. Today, not tomorrow. Today, not when I graduate from college. Today, not when my life's a little better. Today, not when I feel like cleaning up my act tomorrow. Today, If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like you did in the rebellion. Repentance, friends, means means changing your heart and your life today, now, for no one knows what tomorrow will bring. 
Now that word repentance does not mean offering mental assent to the belief in a vague concept called God. It is not a mental nod to God. I didn't have that in there. That sounded kind of cheesy. I'm sorry. As the book of James informs us, even the demons believe and shudder. Repentance means, get this, repentance means changing your mind's portrait of God so that it aligns with the image of God we see in Jesus of Nazareth. That's what the gospel writer Luke is trying to show. Jesus is the very God in the flesh. When we see Jesus, that is the portrait of God we must have. Everything else is an idol. Repentance means believing in Jesus, whom we've been talking about since Christmas, who is God in the flesh, and whom God raised from the dead. And repentance means not only believing in him, but it also means following him, even even when he's headed to the cross. If belief is to be genuine, it will come with a changed life, and you will begin to see the fruit of good works given to you by the Spirit. And be assured, I see that good fruit in so many of you. This brings us to our second block of Scripture. Stick with me for another six minutes, will you? This block serves as a somewhat of a counterbalance to the first. It, it fills out the picture. The first one ups the urgency for repentance, while the second highlights the long-suffering, patient love of the Father. Hear God's word, verse 6, Luke 13. Jesus told this parable. A man owned a fig tree planted in a vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, Look, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree for the past three years, and I've never found any. Cut it down. Why should it continue depleting the soil's nutrients? The gardener responded, Lord, give it, give it one more year, and I will dig around it and give it fertilizer. Maybe it will produce fruit next year. If not, then you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. I believe the owner of the vineyard is God the Father. Isaiah 5 describes God as the owner of a vineyard. And the vineyard in Isaiah 5 represents Israel. God planted Israel in the world, choosing them among all the peoples of the earth. God plants them not so they revel in their privilege, well, I am God's chosen. No, but God plants them so that they might grow into a very large tree that blesses all people, and the birds shall find rest in their branches, and they will bear fruit to feed the nations." In short, Israel is blessed to be a blessing. But by the time of Jesus, Israel has largely failed to accomplish the mission set out for them. They are no longer bearing fruit. So God, I think, I think God is torn up inside about what to do. Cut it down is the first thought. But then comes the gardener. Who is the gardener? I think he represents God the Son. This may be a stretch, but after the resurrection on Easter morning, who does Mary suppose Jesus to be? The gardener. And so I think what we have in this parable 
is an inside look at the heart of the triune God. We overhear a conversation, I think, between the Father and the Son. The Father says, well, what am I to do? I love my people. I chose them, but they aren't bearing fruit. And all the other nations of the world whom I also love, people I also made in my image, they need to eat. They are hungry for the life of God, and they're not getting it through Israel. So it's time to cut them down. I imagine the son responding, but, but how can we do this? We love them. We formed them out of dust. And of course, the father always agrees with the son. Oh, I know, but what about those not getting fed because our people aren't feeding them? Well, let's give them one more year, the son says. Let's delay judgment just a little longer. I will go, father. Yes, I, God the son, will go down to live among them. I will make my home with mortals. Yes, I will go. I am God, and I am free to do as I please, even if that means confining myself to a fragile human body. For love's sake, I want to go. Perhaps this will change their hearts and minds. Give it one more year. Very well. I send you into the world. I can imagine the Father saying, Go rescue Israel, and through them, rescue the world. Something like this, I think, is the tenor of the conversation implied in this parable and in other parables in the Gospel of Luke. So we have, on the one hand, a call to urgent action. For we never know what might befall us and when. And the threat of condemnation stands like a tower about to fall. So we must be urgent in changing our hearts and lives. And on the other hand, we have a God who is infinitely patient, not wanting any to perish. But as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This desire of God's salvation for all of humanity is displayed also in our third and final block of scripture, verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees approached Jesus and said, go, Get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, go tell that fox, look, I'm throwing out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. However, it's necessary for me to travel today, tomorrow, and the next day because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often... Have I wanted to gather your people, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? But you didn't want that. Look, your house is abandoned. I tell you, you won't see me until the time comes when you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the Lord's name. This is God's word. God's heart aches with sadness when people refuse his freely given grace. Recall the second thought exercise. Who is it that you love that doesn't know Jesus? God's heart aches with sadness for them. Jerusalem in our passage is representative 
of all who don't want anything to do with God. How often God wants to gather all of the, all of these, all of these people in, just as a mother hen wants to gather all of her chicks under her wings. But so many are unwilling. You see, God warns us of the threat of condemnation. God tells us of the tower about to fall, not because God likes judgment. God takes no delight in evil, Scripture says. God takes no delight in dishing out punishment. Exactly the opposite, friends. God warns us because God wants us all to run for dear life, away from our self-destruction, away from our habits that destroy both who we are and destroy others in our wake. Jesus wants us to run for dear life, away from all of that, and into his open arms of grace. God wants to embrace all people in his wide arms. But so many are unwilling, like the Jerusalemites of Jesus' day, and it breaks God's heart. Does it break yours as well? Does your heart ache for those who don't know their maker? whose lives are crumbling all around them because of it. Friends, this is the heart with which we must approach non-Christians. This is the changed heart God is ready to give us. We must approach non-Christians not with arguments, eager to prove that we're right. We must approach non-Christians not with judgment, quick to point out their failings while owning it, while not owning up to our own, God is their judge, not you or I. But we must approach them with gentle, aching hearts, longing for them to know a love larger than they've ever known before. We must approach them with sadness and humility, longing for them to discover a purpose far beyond their best dreams. We must approach them as Jesus approaches Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have wanted to gather your people just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are unwilling. Urgency, patience, and longing. Let us be urgent in repentance. Let us be grateful for God's patience, delaying judgment on us and on others so that all can come within his saving embrace. And let us ache with the longing of our Heavenly Father for those who do not yet know Jesus. And then, let us do everything in our power by the power of the Holy Spirit through the humility of prayer. Let us do everything to gather as many chicks as we can into Christ's kingdom of love. Lord, enable us at Heartland to do this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.